0: This is the Get Healthy 360 podcast, where we discuss topics related to your physical, mental, psychological, and spiritual health. Your host is Dr. Chris Ferguson, board certified in anesthesiology and pain management. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and you should consult your primary healthcare provider before making any decisions related to your health. And here's your host, Dr. Chris Ferguson. Oh, one more thing before we start. If you like this episode, please consider rating us five stars. We
1: would really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Today we have with us Michael dunoffer He is a butcher by trade. He also has a website and YouTube channel, That Beefy Butcher. So Michael, thanks a lot for joining us. I'm happy to be here. So do you want to start out with what exactly does a butcher do and what role do you play in getting meat onto the shelves where people buy them?
0: So all right, one of my favorite quotes from... Thomas Keller, he's like one of America's most renowned best chefs. Is he said that like an animal deserves certain things if it's going to be eaten. It deserves a good life, a good death, a good butcher, and a good chef. And like butchers play a really important role in getting meat from the farm to table. Meat has to be cut a certain way. You know, there's a lot of talk about like whether butchers are artists or craftsmen or whatever. And there's definitely like a right or wrong way to cut meat. And you need people that know what to do, like how to earn a giant muscle into something that you can cook
1: and eat. So how did you become a butcher? or What led you down this path?
0: Seven or eight years ago, I started trying to lose weight. I was pretty overweight in my early 20s, and I got really hooked on the paleo train when it was first becoming popular. So I lost 50 pounds kind of doing that and just got really interested in meat. The first time I really tried to cook meat, and I had a girlfriend at the time who was working at Whole Foods, in like a produce department and there was an opening in the meat department so she helped me get an interview and kind of just took off from there like i said i didn't know anything about meat when i started they hired me because i like to cook and i'd always worked in restaurants i was able to talk about cooking and i was interested in it and wanted to learn how to cook different cuts of meat from there after i got an apprenticeship like another year and a half under two years became a meat cutter I worked as an associate manager at like two different Whole Foods. And then just recently, I took a job at a local whole animal butcher shop in St. Louis called uh, Bollyard Meat and
1: Provision. So let's talk about where the meat, which encompasses beef, chicken, pork, and then we'll touch on bison as well. A lot of people, their questions are, can you tell the difference between organic, non-organic, genetically modified? Can you comment on like hormones, antibiotics, just how the beef are raised or chicken or pork or bison? It's kind of a loaded
0: question. There's a lot to unpack. If you want to start with flavor, I definitely think that how the animal's raised and what the animal eats affects its flavor for better or worse. I don't particularly care for the flavor of completely grass-fed beef. I think it lacks a lot of the buttery richness that grain finishing can give it. That being said, I've had some grass-fed beef that is really good. I find that with grass-fed, with completely grass-fed beef, there's a lot more variation in the flavor. Grain finishing kind of standardizes it. With just the grass, the meat is affected a lot more by what the animal eats because it's not like every pasture just contains, you know, like the grass that's in your front yard. There's all different types of things that grow in a pasture where the cows would be eating. For my money, what I look for is a 100% pasture raised animal that has been given some grain. And this is exclusive to beef, what I'm talking about right now. We can get into all the other animals. An animal that is 100% pasture raised, as in never taken to a feedlot, but they take grain out to the pasture for the animals to eat. So basically, the way cattle are raised is that all cattle get fed grass for the majority of their lives, and then they're either grass-finished or grain-finished. So when people typically refer to grass-fed, what they mean is 100% grass-fed or grass-finished. You know, you can take an animal to feedlot and still call it grass-fed because the animal ate grass for most of its life. Then, with grain finishing, you either have where the animal is taken to a feedlot to finish on grain or they take grain out to a pasture raised animal. What I look for for like the best combination of animal welfare and flavor in the meat is a pasture raised grain finished animal. There's a lot of different reasons why you would buy one or the other aside from flavor and cost. It's generally more expensive to raise a 100% grass fed animal because the grain gets the animal to a heavy your weight for slaughter quicker.
1: What about organic versus not organic and those terms? Organic beef is less common than chicken or pork because organic organic
0: is a very specific certification from the USDA. I did a whole like written post on my Instagram and talked a lot about it in one of my videos about chicken. But I think people tend to have this idea of organic as being sort of a vague saying that they associate with pasture raising, with it being on a farm and not in a confined animal feeding operation. It is and it isn't. It's a very specific set of requirements from the US Department of Agriculture that you have to meet to then get a USDA certification to be organic. So if you go to the store and you buy a pack of chicken, if it doesn't have that little USDA organic stamp on it, it's not organic. It's a lot of different... The animal does have to have... And this is actually pretty easy to find. You can pretty much just Google USDA organic and it'll come up right on the um, USDA's website. The animal has to have some outdoor access. That's not the same thing as pasture raising pasture raising requires a lot. It's basically unlimited outdoor access barring like they still need shelter for when there's like really poor weather. The feed and the land that the animals are be- being given and they're on has to be certified organic for three years before you can get your certification. So you have to be giving them a certified organic feed and have the land certified organic for three years before you can even start calling your meat organic. And there's kind of a laundry list of other things, but like those are some of the big ones because it highlights it's easier to certify a small area organic. Than like a, a huge pasture organic because you have to then certify everything that the animal's eating in that pasture is organic which is difficult so it's actually easier to limit the animal's outdoor access giving it just a little bit and have it be organic than it would be to have a pasture raised animal that's then certified organic
1: so because like I'll get my beef from so I live in Wisconsin and there uh, there's a little there's a local farmer and her and her husband raised beef and. I have another podcast with her, but she talks about how she can't call, exactly, she can't call her food or her beef organic because they run around all day in a pasture and she can't define everything they eat, but she has these happy cows running all over the place. Yeah, that's exactly it.
0: And I, I think people really tend to associate it with the animal being outdoors, which is not necessarily the case. Like I said, it does have to have some outdoor access that's in the USDA guidelines. I think somebody on your Facebook asked about grass-fed pork and chicken and it's a good thing to point out because we get more questions than not about is grass-fed pork a thing, is grass-fed chicken a thing. It's not because chickens and pigs don't eat grass. The grass-fed, grass-finishing, brain-finishing only applies to ruminant, sheep, bison, beef. Those are the only animals that can only eat grass. Birds and hogs are omnivores. Beef are typically always raised outdoors. It's hogs and chickens that tend to get
1: confined. Can you come- and then. Everyone's, I think, seen those documentaries where the cows are in these massive feedlots and they have this little tiny stall and they're not really moving. That's the grain finishing.
0: That's the last few months of their life. Generally, it's around like 140 days where they take them to those places and then fatten them up before slaughter. Which seems that's like a very,
1: great. to me, it seems like that's a miserable way to spend the last few months of your life. Yeah. Versus take them into the barn and then they'll eat the grain in the barn and then they'll wander around outside. Eating.
0: Yeah, so that's exactly, that's the pasture-raised grain finished okay. Animals that are taken to feedlot aren't pasture-raised,
1: 100%. So the pasture-raised stamp is what you're telling me, what you're kind of looking for with beef. Yeah,
0: for for my money, that's what I want. That's what I want to eat. If I have a choice, if I can walk into a store or talk to a farmer and pick out type of beef that I want, I want it to be pasture-raised, but I want it to have had some grain. I can argue the facts of how healthy that is for the animal, how happy that makes the animal, but we're kind of specifically just talking about flavor, and that's, in opinion but I have and can you comment then
1: also on hormones and an- antibiotics this is another thing I really want to talk about because somebody commented on your page
0: and they used the phrase that the animals are being shot full of chemicals and it's another thing that I run into a lot where people have this idea that like animals are constantly getting like pumped full of stuff and it's getting into your food and antibiotics are completely illegal to give to animals that are in the food chain. It's kind of complicated, but from what I understand, like you can give them antibiotics, but they have to be like quarantined or removed completely from the food supply.
1: Wait, but so wait, if a cow say gets pneumonia, you, you want to treat the antibiotics, you're not going to kill the cow because it has pneumonia. So you let's say you treat the pneumonia does that mean they can never get back into the food supply i think
0: there is a time span of like 40 days where they can be if they like if your animals aren't going to slaughter before 40 days they can put it back in the antibiotic is out of the system okay but for the most part yeah it's you're not going to be eating an animal that has like antibiotics in its
1: system. and that applies to all of those animals we're talking about beef pork chicken
0: bison yep Completely illegal in the U.S. That's pretty recent. I think it's been illegal for pork and I'd have to like triple fact check this, but I think it's been illegal for pork and chicken for a very long time, pork and bird. And then... I think last year they finally finalized it for beef.
1: But there are a lot of people that will say, well, when you're drinking milk, you're getting all these hormones that they pump into the cows. So
0: then that's another thing. The hormones are still legal for
1: beef. I thought you said, okay, wait, okay. We were talking about antibiotic. Yes. Okay, so what about what's the issue with hormones then?
0: So then hormones, and this is kind of like a on-topic side note, it's important. You have to say added hormones because animals obviously have their own hormones, just like we do. Sure, so, so added hormones. Um, those will always be in the muscle. As far as I know, I'm not an endocrinologist, but added hormones is illegal for pork and birds, but not beef. You can still give beef a steroidal hormone like they do. There's a natural anasynthetic. You can find Farmers that don't do that. Whole Foods has a policy of never allowing added hormones in their beef.
1: Is there a way for you to tell if the animals had hormones or not? No. Um,
0: if you're buying from a farmers market, you know you have the luxury of asking the farmer directly, or you can look for companies that sell meat and have an animal welfare certification.
1: All right. So then, what's the difference? Let's go back to the hormone issue. So, what are your thoughts then on on the hormones in the beef, milk cows?
0: I'd rather not eat it, but I would say like it, it's on par with my views of GMOs, there's not a lot of scientific evidence to say that it's actually harmful. It's probably not great for the animal, but I'm not particularly worried about it. And the same thing with the GMO. This is from what I've seen on the rest of the...
1: So GMO, just to clarify for... So just clarify what GMO is for anyone who's not...
0: Yeah. Oh, genetically modified organism, which only applies to the feed it's completely illegal to genetically modify animals in the United States. So when we talk about GMOs, I understand that it always applies to the feed the animal eating and not the animal itself.
1: Are you familiar with how bison are raised then? So bison are almost
0: exactly the same as beef. They're ruminants, they only eat grass. I listened to uh, an interview with a bison farmer not long ago and one of the things he said is that the vast majority he said upwards of like almost 90% of bison in the US are finished at feedlot. It's extremely difficult to find 100% grass said bison uh, because the the taste is even more extreme than the beef. So when you buy bison, odds are really good that it got grain and not just grass.
1: And what would be the pros and cons of eating bison versus beef? There's some argument to say that bison has more like mineral content to it. I've heard that.
0: I've heard it has a stronger like iron to it. I think it has a stronger iron flavor to it for sure. Bison are more acclimated to living in this country you know, they sort of evolved here, like where the beef didn't, they're domesticated here. So there's something to say, like for environmentally, it's probably better to have bison, but I don't buy bison. I just think it tastes like expensive beef. And I don't think it really tastes any better than beef. I prefer the flavor of beef.
1: Any other thoughts on how pork, chicken, beef are raised before we move on? I mean, kind
0: of cycling back to the way hogs and chickens are raised. Organic applies a lot more to them because they're more likely to be raised organic because of the confining, like I said. One of the things I forgot to mention about organic feed is that that's your best bet for a certified non-GMO feed. If you do care about that, a certified organic feed can never have GMOs in it. You can find a lot more organic pork and chicken. I still like to buy pasture raised pork and chicken when I can. Same with the beef. Those are animals that were raised outside their whole lives.
1: And then there was a question about commercially raised chickens that make eggs versus a farm raised eggs.
0: Yeah. I mean, like, I don't know a ton about egg raising, just like I don't know a ton about dairy cows. But I think the question was specifically about like freshness, right? Which is like a good opportunity to point out that, like, in the food service world, whether it's a grocery store or a restaurant, anything that's not frozen is fresh. It doesn't matter how old it is those are specific terms for it's fresh or it's previously frozen it doesn't matter like how old it is as long as it's never been frozen we can call it fresh oh okay but then as far as eggs go typically if you're buying eggs from a farmer they're going to be fresher or less old than eggs you would get at a grocery store. The eggs you get at a grocery store have to be, you know, laid in probably some other state and then refrigerated and shipped to you over the course of probably a week. Whereas like your farmer probably just got those eggs a couple days ago, maybe, maybe even the same day. And they've most likely never been refrigerated, which also has a big impact on like flavor and color. You know, if, if anybody's had like a fresh out of the chicken egg, I'm sure they'll notice like the yolk is typically a lot more like bold and bright. And colorful. I don't know how much the nutrition is affected by it. I would probably say it's very negligible. But you know, there's absolutely a a small reduction in like flavor. Refrigerating your eggs and
1: having them be a little older. So from my experience, because we have a a lot of farmers markets in Wisconsin, like a local fresh egg compared to a big box chain commercially raised chicken producing an egg, the local farmer's egg, the shell is going to be thicker. The yolk will will be a lot more yellow. It'll have a lot in a good way, yolky flavor. The commercial eggs, the eggs, the shells are thinner, the yolks are a little bit more of a pale yellow, and they just don't have as much flavor. It's a very noticeable difference to me.
0: It's just, you know, if you want a nicer, fresher egg, buy it from, I keep saying fresher. If you want a nicer, uh, less old egg, buy it from uh, somebody, you know, down the street. I like to approach meat from a very like, I'm not a scientist, but I like to talk about it in a very scientific way because, you know, we're, we're not dealing with beliefs. We're dealing with facts. Protein is denatured in some way or it's not. And I doubt
1: that it is. I don't know a lot about beef. I don't know about pork, chicken, bison. So I walk in the grocery store and there's a ton of different cuts. And so I know there's a T-bone steak and a New York strip, and there's some vague differences that I know. But other than that, I'm kind of lost. So if you can help clarify or educate me and everyone else. We've covered organic pasteurized, where the is coming from, et cetera. Can you go through the different cuts of beef and what you would do with them?
0: Yeah, for sure. Biggest thing with this is that you should have a relationship with your butcher. Somebody, I forget who, said that like, your butcher should be like your barber or your bartender. You should see them all the time and you should have a relationship with them and be able to talk to them about what you want to cook get ideas from them. Your butcher should be able to tell you how to cook anything that's in their meat case. And if they can't, you should probably find a better one. That's where I would really start. You go in and Eye Around is on sale and you're like, hey, I've never had that. What is that? And your butcher's like, oh, it's pretty tough. I wouldn't buy it. You know, Then I would probably go down the street to the next butcher and see what they have to say about it. Because there's no bad cut on the animal. It's just each one can require a different method of cooking to make it taste good and be tender.
1: So do you want to start with, say, the cheapest cuts of beef and how would you cook it and kind of work your way up to the more premium cuts of beef and then how you would cook those?
0: Yeah, absolutely. This is very broad generalization. And I'm sure if any other butchers are listening to this, they might be yelling at me. But you can easily divide the animal into three sections if we're specifically talking about beef. The front end, the shoulder sort of referred to as like the chuck, the middle end where we have like we just call it the middle meat. And then the back end is the round. Like I said, there's a lot of variation in this when you actually get down to very specific cuts. But just sort of a good way to point and a good way to sort of conceptualize it is to break it into these three pieces. And each of these three pieces, most of the meat will cook about the same way inside of those three pieces. The middle meat, sort of the loin of your animal, if you're thinking about kind of from the scapula down to the pelvic bone, all the meats in there are generally very tender. That's where almost all of our really good steaks come from the ribeye the strip all those like really nice fillets all those really good tender meats are in there the front section of the animal the chuck that's where most of your like really good raising and smoking meats come from they're really fatty they're tough but they get super tender if you cook them a long slow time for really long for Uh, at a very low temperature. Things like brisket, chuck roast, those all come from that front part of the animal. And then the last section, the round, cuts of the round can kind of be typically like the most difficult to cook. They're very lean. They're very tough. They're excellent for making roast beef. That's probably like the most ideal thing I do with them. A lot of the steaks, if you cut them into steaks, can be made tender if you marinate them or cook them in a specific way, but they're not ideal. So that's, that's where I like to start people. That was kind of always how I started people when I trained new people about meat. That's a good way to start talking about how to cook different cuts.
1: So, you're talking about the round. So, there's like round steak, top round. <laughs> So I mean,
0: if it says round, that's an indication that it's from that section of the animal. Anything denoted round,
1: so anything round is from that back end. Is going to be a tougher piece of meat to cook. Again, can you give give some cooking tips?
0: Well, honestly, this is the whole point of point of the YouTube channel and what I'm trying to do is I want people to be able to walk into the grocery store and whatever cut of meat is on sale. Looks good. Confidently, be able to take that home and cook it. We could talk for hours on end going through every single cut and how to cook it. But like, if you really want to get into it, I would definitely refer people to my YouTube channel because that's my plan over time is to go through like all the cuts and cook them for people.
1: And your YouTube channel is the, that beefy butcher, that beefy butcher, yeah. But can you give me a quick synopsis of what you would do with it? Absolutely.
0: Ideally, any cut of round, eye round, top round, bottom round you'll see a cut called sirloin tip, which is actually the quad muzzle of the animal. That's a cut of the round, it's not actually sirloin. People just sell it as sirloin, with the name sirloin on it. Any of those cuts, they're very lean, they are tough. I, I think they're ideal for making roast beef. Cooking them to like a medium rare and slicing them thin, you're gonna get the best result like that. If you wanna get into more detail, I would brine them first. It'll add a lot more flavor to it. If your butcher isn't cutting it that way, ask them to cut you some kind of roast. Don't buy like a pound of it. Buy like three pounds. Get in your oven or smoke it. And like I said, slice it then, cook it to like a rare, medium rare. That's how it'll cook best.
1: All right. And what's the four shank and brisket?
0: So four shank and brisket are, cuts off that front part. Like I said, they are best for braising or smoking. They're very tough. They, they tend to have a lot more fat in them. So they'll get super tender. Like I actually have some shanks in my fridge right now. I'm going to braise in some red wine. And let them go for a couple hours in the oven at a low temperature. And like right now, raw, they're hard as nails. But they'll get to be like one of the most tender cuts of the animal.
1: What temperature and what length of time are you are you talking? It can vary.
0: We're talking long, like hours and hours, like six to eight, at below 250. And I actually even do my roast beef when I cook things to a rare, medium rare. I do it at between 200 and 250 because I think things cook a lot more evenly that way, even if you're not getting them to like a full shred, fall apart tenderness.
1: And the other part of the, the cow is the chuck, which is more the front part, correct?
0: Yeah. So brisket and foreshank are included in that front part. Okay. The brisket is actually in the chest. It's the pectoral muscle. And the foreshank is, you know, obviously the front leg. And then the chuck is the shoulder. It's a big collection of muscles. It kinda lays between the spine and the scapula. It's a whole collection of muscles.
1: So the round and sirloin, that's from the back, that's really tough, low cooking. The foreshank, brisket and chuck, that's all the front, and that's that fatty, rich meat.
0: Yeah, so those you wanna cook very low and slow and very well done so that they shred. Are, the chuck roast is like your typical pot roast. You know, brisket you'll get in like, when you go to like barbecue places and you have that very tender brisket, that's because they smoked that for hours and hours. That's the round, I, I like to cook them low, For a longer period of time, but I don't cook them past medium rare. If you do a really well done cut of the round, it's just going to be super tough. The big difference between these two sections is the shoulder, the front part, all those fatty tough cuts, you want those to shred. The lean tough cuts on the back end, you want to slice roast beef and pot roast. Pot roast is, you know, like a shredded beef, whereas like roast beef, that's that real pink, bright red slice, thin slices of beef.
1: So you're shredding the stuff from the front, which is the chuck and the foreshank, but you're thin slicing the sirloin and the round.
0: Yeah, the sirloin is annoying because the actual sirloin is the like glute meat of the animal. People will just call the quad muscle that's actually in the leg, a sirloin tip. Um, so it's not technically a sirloin, but they just call it that because people associate sirloin with like quality. So you want to look for a difference between top sirloin is the really good lean tender steak
1: and sirloin tip is the really lean tough steak. And how would you cook those sirloin steaks like a top sirloin?
0: Top sirloins are great steaks. They're very tender. Like I said, it's like the glute meat. It lays like in the hip. They're real tender, nice steaks. I wouldn't cook them very long. They can get tough if you overcook them. Any Anytime you overcook a steak, that's when you're in danger of it becoming tough. If we're talking about good tender steak, so like a a medium rare rare medium at the most. Sirloin is one of those middle. It's sort of the very back end. A lot of times it'll be, depending on how the animal is like initially butchered, it might be on that back end, but it's considered one of the like tender middle.
1: And let's move on then to ribeye, like ribeye steak.
0: So all of your really nice steaks are going to be in that middle section. Strip, filet, girt steak, tip flank. any of those are going to be basically between the scapula and the pelvic bone. And they're all going to lay inside. The ribeye, three most common Stakes people know, I guess, are like ribeye, strip, and tenderloin. And what's a T bone
1: for anyone who doesn't know? So,
0: a T bone is a bone and strip stick. It's exactly the same thing. Okay. That's actually what I was going to go into. The ribeye and the strip are one long section on the animal. It's the entire erector spinae from just past the scapula down into the pelvic bone that runs along the spine. The tenderloin is the psoas muscle that runs just inside that. Basically, all you need to know is that they run the length of the spine on like the inside of the animal. You know, if like, if you reach around and touch your back, you can feel your spine. So then on the other side of that is those muscles. The ribeye will basically be the section that runs from your shoulder blade to like the bottom of the ribs. And then the strip steak is the same muscle, but it runs from the bottom of the ribs to the hip bone. Okay, so all of those
1: tender, like the high end steak, the takeaway that I'm getting, correct me if I'm wrong, is it's the middle of the cow. And it's all those back muscles and they're just more tender.
0: Yeah. And also a lot of the muscles that come inside the ribs, like along the front, of the animal. Um, that's where a lot of those of the steaks you see like flank steak and skirt steak are. They're part of the animal's uh, diaphragm.
1: All right. So everyone's familiar with the higher quality T-bone ribeye and they're, a, you can go on your YouTube channel. There are a thousand YouTube channels on how to cook steak. What's yeah. your, what are your thoughts on um, flank steak and skirt steak? What are those? And what you I
0: mean? love skirt steak. I don't care for, Steak. Let's backtrack real quick while we're on this, because I think this is really interesting that a lot of people don't realize, is that back to the strip and the tenderloin, a strip and a T-bone are the same thing. They just, a T-bone is with the bone and a strip is without. And a porterhouse and a T-bone are the same muscle at different ends. The easiest way to think about it is like the strip and the, t- and the tenderloin run together on two sides of the spine. And so, so that- a porterhouse... Okay. if you've ever seen one, is a whole New York strip steak and like a big fat tenderloin on the side. And the T-bone is the same piece just further down because the tenderloin, I'm sure people have seen like a whole tenderloin, it tapers, it starts out really big at one end and then gets thin. So as it tapers down, the porterhouse becomes the T-bone. It's it's one big piece. If you cut it from one end that has all the tenderloin, it's a porterhouse. If you cut it from the end that has the very tapered small or no tenderloin, it's a T-bone. If you take the bone out of the whole thing, then you have a whole tenderloin and a whole strip.
1: Okay, so the porterhouse steak and the New York strip, sorry, the the porterhouse steak and the T-bone steak are the same cut, it's just coming from different parts on the animal. If you start at the back end of the animal, it's a porterhouse, if you go more to the front, it's a T-bone, but the T-bone and the porterhouse are made up of two different cuts. So there's a New York strip and there's a tenderloin. tenderloin. If you put them together, you get a T-bone. And on a different part of the animal, the New York strip, and the tenderloin make the porterhouse?
0: Pretty much it's the same, it's the same section, just a different end. At the hip end where the tenderloin, the big end of the tenderloin starts, and then sort of the middle of the spine where the ribs begin is where that tenderloin ends. So that whole piece, if you're looking at a cow from their butt to their ribs, that that piece is called the down the spine is called a short loin. That's your New York strip and your tenderloin. And so if you start from the butt end where the tenderloin is really thick. That's a porterhouse, and then as it goes down to where the ribs are and the tenderloin has tapered down, that's a T-bone. And so the two muscles of a porterhouse are a New York strip and a tenderloin.
1: And for anyone that doesn't know, then what would you say the different, the major differences are then between a New York strip and a tenderloin?
0: Not a heck of a lot. Tenderloins are definitely more tender, um, but neither have a lot of marbling, so there's not a ton of flavor. You know, if you go to ten butchers, nine of them are not gonna say that either of those steaks are their favorite steaks. So what then
1: is your favorite steak?
0: I think almost objectively, a ribeye is the best steak. It's the best combination of flavor and tenderness, especially if you ask for like the first cut off the chuck end. So that's right where the shoulder blade of the animal begins is where that section, the ribeye section starts. And so the very first uh, two inches of say either side of the shoulder blade, the beginning of the shoulder blade is going to be the most tender and flavorful section on that animal.
1: So the, at least the ribeyes I've had, they, they tend to be tender, but they're also very fatty.
0: Yes. So there's two types of fat that you're looking for. There's intramuscular fat and intramuscular fat. When you see the little white flecking inside the red, that's what you want. You want like as much of that as possible. When you see like big chunks of fat in between two sections of muscle. That's not ideal. going can add a lot of flavor when you cook the steak, but you know, you're probably not going to eat it. The way a ribeye, a whole ribeye loin, the one end, the chuck end will have most of that white flecking fat and the least amount of the big chunks of fat. The middle part will have the most big chunks of fat, and then when you get down to the very end, it'll be the most lean overall. It's basically a strip steak. The best advice I can give you for like general tips on buying beef is to just talk to your butcher. People tend to go to the butcher shop with a very specific idea. They got a recipe they pulled offline that someone who knows very little about meat wrote and they want this specific thing that the recipe says that a lot of times doesn't make any sense to the butcher because the person that wrote it doesn't really know that much about meat. Butcher might be out of that cut and then everybody's frustrated because they can't get what they wanted. I would really like steer people towards going into the butcher shop and talking to the butcher, you know, what's good? What's on sale? What'd you cut that you like today? Experiment with stuff. Don't be afraid to screw something up. I know it's frustrating when you overcook an expensive cut of meat, but part of learning how to cook is experimenting and being okay with screwing something up and then learning from those mistakes and making something better next time. And if you really have your heart set on a specific cut, call ahead, give them a few days, say, hey, on in three days, I need a flank steak and they can hold one for you. People don't understand that with certain cuts like flank steak, there's only two you know, relatively small pieces on every animal. And so it's an incredibly popular cut that there's just not a lot of. And when people come in and everybody wants one, they run out quickly.
1: What are some other things you wish people knew about ordering beef? Things that you wish people knew about interacting with a butcher?
0: I, the only other thing I would add is like, full warning, not all butchers are like me. Cutting meat is a job that people can fall into that they just do to get paid for. Some people don't care. Be wary of that when you go into a grocery store or a butcher shop. I'd say butcher shop, you're probably going to find less of that because if you have a place, a store that is exclusively about selling meat, the people there are typically going to be more passionate about it. But your average grocery store butcher might not Really care. They might just be there to get a paycheck. You know, it is a, an entry level job in a lot of circumstances. Most people are not like me. They don't have a, a passion for being a butcher. So, if like you talk to a butcher and they come off as apathetic or rude, like don't be shy about going someplace else. I always tell people when I'm training new people that like the end of the day goal is to sell the meat. And if you're not doing that, if you're not playing to people how to cook everything besides the tenderloin well, and making sure they go home and can confidently cook this and come back to you to buy it again, you're not doing your job. You're not selling the meat. You're not making any money and you're not going to be open for very long.
1: And what are your thoughts on ground beef? What exactly is ground beef? Where is it coming from? Tips on buying um, ground there beef? There
0: actually is specific distinction between like ground beef and hamburger. And it has to do with the ground beef is the beef that is cut off of the animal as it's being broken down into smaller pieces. And then anything generated from, we would call it bench trim. Like if you have a section of muscle that you're cutting into steak and sort of the bits of muscle that you cut off the steak to make it a nicer steak, that would be going into hamburger ground. Ground beef is the muscle that we cut off steaks and roast. If you're a grocery store butcher, what's coming into your store is basically sections or sections of muscle or whole muscle. Um, So you'll have a big piece of... Say like a, a ribeye because we just talked about that it's a good example. You know, it's a big you know maybe foot and a half two foot section of of meat, and then you cut that into steaks. And generally, with every one of these muscles that we cut into steaks and roast, there's like sections that we're trimming off to make the roast nicer. And so the excess muscle that we cut off of it, when we do that, that's what we grind. Ground beef, if you think of it, it's really just like another cut of beef run through a grinder. If You're buying ground beef. You go to a grocery store and you see three trays of ground beef. And one says chuck, one says round, one says sirloin. What's actually there is probably not what it says. What that butcher shop is trying to make you think is that all of that beef in that tray was ground from the sirloin part of the animal or sirloin steaks and that's kind of ridiculous. Like No one's going to do that. You're just losing. If you're taking a sirloin steak and grinding it, you're losing. You're taking a piece of meat that you could sell for $10 a pound and grinding it and selling it for $3 a pound. So don't assume that if you're buying ground sirloin, everything in that tray is ground from the sirloin part of the animal. Generally, butchers will just use those as terms to designate leanness sirloin is always very lean. It's like 90% or leaner. Like it's 90% beef, 10% fat. Round is typically somewhere around like 85. um, And shuck is generally fattier. It's like 80-20.
1: So the fat content of the ground beef, that's determined by where it's coming from.
0: No, it's really determined uh, by how the person cuts. And that 80-20 is a percentage, 80% lean muscle and 20% fat. So if I take a fatty muscle, like a chuck, like we talked about, and I cut all the fat off of it, and it's now 90% lean, and I grind that, that's 90%. It's actually really simple. It's literally like if you take all the muscle and cut all the fat off of it, and then you weigh up eight pounds of that, and then you take all this fat that has no muscle on it and add two pounds, you now have an 80-20 mixture that you run through a grinder and you have 80-20 ground beef.
1: So they're just taking the beef that's lean and they just figure out what percentage they want. They mix in fat and then that's your percent.
0: Yeah, the stores are required by the USDA to have a fat tester which is like a little, kind of looks like a little chemistry set. And you literally take an half an ounce or one ounce of your ground beef and cook it. And it renders the fat out of it and measures how much fat was in that beef and gives you a percentage. Stores are supposed to do that every day with every batch of ground beef they grind so that they know exactly what percentage it is. Probably doesn't always happen. It's a very like, time consuming process, but it is required by like the USDA. It all kind of boils down to if, if you're going to uh, a butcher and buying a product and consistently getting a bad product, maybe you're the X factor and you don't know how to cook it properly. But if they're not explaining it to you, like just stop going there. Like, those are not people that care about what they're doing. And you should support people that do care about what they're doing. And also you shouldn't have to eat meat that is bad, tastes bad, or is chewy or
1: whatever. So I, I know we really focused in on beef. Correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of those things would still transfer over to bison and pork. Yeah. Pork So what about chicken then? I love chicken.
0: I hate boneless, skinless chicken unless I'm making like uh fajitas. Okay. But Any tips on buying chicken? I I look for pasture-raised when I can. It's not as common. You know, if your choice is organic or nothing, uh, I would buy organic. One thing you can look for that's probably kind of rare, but it'll be indicated on the package is air chilled. If You go into a grocery store and you see a, like a frozen bag of chicken and it says like contains 0.03% solution. Have you seen that? You know what I'm talking about?
1: Yeah. And I have seen other things where they kind of allude to nothing's been injected in the chicken. What are they talking about?
0: Well, that's, I mean, that's different. They're just saying like, yeah, nothing's been injected into the chicken. Do you have a chicken that is labeled as being brine, that may have had brine injected into it, but it's just salt, sugar, and water? And that has to be listed in the ingredients that it's in there. What I'm talking about is that solution is referring to what's called water chilling. So when they take a chicken and they kill it and they pull out the guts and they pull off the feathers, the next step is to cool the carcass down. And there's two ways of doing that. They will either dunk it into a huge bath of cold water or blast it with cold air. Whatever possible, look for that air chilling because A, it'll retain a lot more flavor. When you dunk it into that water, the meat will inevitably absorb some of that water that then cooks out when you cook it. That's what that 003 whatever number solution is referring to and a lot of your flavor is going to go with it and it's also a little more sanitary they don't change those batches of water often and they'll just sanitize them with not bleach but like a chlorine solution that's like safe for consumption you know it'll sanitize it and then it evaporates so you're not like actually eating the chlorine but it's a lot more sanitary to just blast it with cold air than have a couple hundred birds in the same water bath constantly. So I, I really try and steer people towards that. That has less to do with any nutritional value or animal welfare. It's like strictly about flavor and I guess sanitation.
1: So any other closing thoughts on, on beef, chicken, pork, or bison that you think people should know? Yeah. Here's a, like an interesting closing question is, can you tell by looking at the meat how the animal was raised?
0: No, you can tell little things. With beef especially, the marbling is a big cue. Like I said, you want as much of that like white flecking in the muscle as possible. That's a cue that like the animal probably ate a lot of grain or maybe it was just easily fattened up. Lean is not always better. You know sure if you're doing a low fat diet, that's what you want but I had an old boss who uh, used to say that fat is the magic carpet the flavor rides on so like even if you have like big chunks of fat uh, when you cook it that's going to all that's going to do is add flavor to the meat and you might end up cutting those out and not eating them but it will make your meat more flavorful you know if you have a lean cut that has a huge fat cap on the top people always ask if we can trim that off or if we can remove it completely and you know we can do it if they really want to but it's not ideal we cut that and left it on there because it'll cook best with it on. It's just going to make your meat tastier, and you don't necessarily have to eat it.
1: Yeah. Can you tell so, how a cow or animal was raised based on looking at the beef.
0: The short answer is no. Like I said, you can tell little things like how much grain the animal probably ate by how much fat there is. I've seen grass-fed, 100% grass-fed beef that is still very well marbled. You know, they, those cows just ate a ton of grass. You can certainly tell. You can you can you can tell a level of quality. You know, if if things lack color, I would generally steer away from them. It it doesn't necessarily have to be like bright and wet and fresh looking. Uh, I at least dry out the surface of like all the meat before I cook it. It gives it a better sear and puts more has more flavor. To do that. So, a lot of times, actually, like the drier something looks, the better it is. It's kind of a, most people don't think like that. They think it's dry, it's old, it's going to be bad. But more specifically to the quality, if, if something has a bad color to it, if it looks very pale, probably not the best. You know, if you see chicken that looks almost, you know, white or just like pale and colorless before you when it's still raw. Same thing with pork. It's probably not going to have a lot of flavor to it. You know, you want like that bright, vibrant pink color to it. It should look
1: appetizing. So Michael, thank you very much for joining. And I know we skimmed over a lot of very complicated details because you're talking about pieces of meat that are on an animal. It's hard to picture these without an actual video or picture, but you have a lot of great videos on your website. So you know, do you want to talk about just where people can watch your videos or contact you if they want to?
0: Yeah, the YouTube, the um, there's basically YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Everything is easy to find by searching that bt butcher instagram at that beefy butcher facebook and the youtube are relatively new i'm working on a lot of videos trying to get more up but i've been using my instagram for a long time and there's a lot of information on there if you feel like taking the time to scroll through you're gonna be annoyed with a lot of videos of me lifting though and don't be shy about messaging me or dming me or whatever commenting on things i'm doing this because i genuinely enjoy talking about it it's a very common experience for me in my daily life for people to, when they find out I'm a butcher, start asking me all these questions. And inevitably they'll be like, oh, sorry, I keep bothering you. And I'm like, no, it's, it, this is, I enjoy this. I, I want to educate people about me. I think every person has the right. To know about what they're putting in their body and should know, like how to cook all these things and the difference between a grass fed animal and a pasture raised animal and an organic animal. These things are meant to be transparent. I don't have a a secret knowledge that I want to keep. I want everyone to know what I know.
1: Well, Michael, again, thank you very much for taking the time and and educating everyone about all of the the technical terms like pasture raised, organic, grass fed, grass finished. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, again, thanks again. We'll include all of your contact information in the show notes. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a comment on the Get Healthy
0: 360 Facebook page and consider subscribing to this podcast. Thanks!